0: Would you stand with me for the reading of Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, beginning in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, indeed, we pray that our ears and our hearts would be open. And attentive to the Holy Spirit this morning. That we would allow the Holy Spirit to take your word and apply it to each and every heart. To bring conviction and comfort. Father we ask you to work your work here in this place today. God grant us understanding. Lord, may there be a hunger and thirst in our hearts for the things of God. May we be alive not simply in appearance or motion only, but in reality from the heart. May there be spiritual life and vitality in us. And in this body of believers that we call Pitts Baptist Church. And if there are any here this morning that do not know Christ in a personal way, God, I pray that you would bring conviction to them today. Help them to understand their lostness, their need of a Savior, and draw them to Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I like the analogy that Dr. John MacArthur uses in his commentary on the book of Revelation. He says, the vast distances of interstellar space are even hard for the human mind to comprehend. You see, the nearest stars to us are trillions of miles away. Such long distances have forced astronomers to come up with an appropriate unit of measurement. After all, the measurements we use for things on land just simply don't work in space. It's too vast. And so to speak in terms of inches or feet or yards or, or even miles would really be meaningless. And so the measurement used is light years. One light year equals the distance that light traveling at more than a hundred and 86,000 miles per second travels in one year, which would be more than 6 trillion miles. Now those kind of numbers boggle the mind. Let me put it like this. If a star 30 light years away exploded and died five years ago, we would not be able to tell by looking at it for another 25 years. Now imagine that. We would continue to see the light from that star for 25 more years even though it's no longer in existence. Now as MacArthur points out, that illustration perfectly points out or sums up the situation in many churches today. They still shine with a reflected light of a brilliant past. Looking at them from a distance, one might think that nothing has changed when in reality everything has changed. Though a brilliant lighthouse of the gospel in the past, today they're dead and they're living off the laurels of the past. Now that was precisely the case with the church at Sardis. It was reputed to be alive, but the Lord Jesus pronounced it as being dead. Now folks, what we learn is that the gospel has to be kept alive and vibrant through each and every generation. Each generation has to hold on to the gospel, fan it into flames, and live it out courageously in their current context. You see a church is not simply to be a history book of what once was It is to be a living organism and a witness to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ today Now following the outline that we've been going each week as we look at these seven churches First of all I simply want to call your attention to the church The church at Sardis was an actual historical church and at the same time it serves as a symbol of all the dead churches that have existed throughout history. Their appearance of life is only an illusion. Now so far we've seen what Christ expects of his church. In looking at the church at Ephesus we saw there a church that was very active They were laboring tirelessly for the Lord, but they were doing it not out of devotion anymore. The Lord said to them that they had departed from their first love. They had taken a great fall. They were serving, but they were not serving out of a heart of devotion and love. And so he challenged them on that and he chastised them and he called them to repentance. And then we looked at the church at Smyrna, perhaps the most persecuted of all of the New Testament churches. They were small and they were weak and yet they had held fast and faithful to the gospel and the Lord commended them. In fact, he had no words of condemnation for the church at Smyrna. What a wonderful fellowship they were. And then there was the church at Pergamum, and we saw how the Lord challenged us through that letter that we are to remain morally pure. We're not to let moral compromise seep into our daily devotion, our walk with Christ, to where somebody could look at our life and they could say that morally, by what we do, morally and ethically, they would not even recognize that we're believers. And then last week we looked at the church at Thyatira. And we saw there that a church is to remain doctrinally pure. It matters what we believe. We're to believe the truth of the gospel. Because what we believe on the inside will come out with what we do on the outside. You can't help but for that to happen. As a man is as he thinketh in his heart as the Bible says Now today with Sardis we're going to see that a church is to be in a state of vitality in life Now the problem at Sardis is they had begun to live in the past They had long since begun to simply go through the motions of religion They were content with what they had done yesterday They were neither persecuted from within or without. Life was easy for them and they were prosperous. And in that setting they had ceased to walk by faith with Christ and they had simply become religious. Now the message to Sardis is a warning to all great churches that are living on past glory. I think of what Dr. Vance Havner used to say. Dr. Dr. Vance Havner frequently reminded Christians that spiritual ministries oftentimes go through four stages. A man, a movement, a machine, and then a monument. A man, a movement, a machine, and then a monument. The church at Sardis was already at the monument stage. Now notice how the Lord introduces himself to this church. He introduces himself as the one having the seven spirits of God. Now we know there's only one Holy Spirit, but the number seven demonstrates fullness and completeness. He's actually quoting an Old Testament text that points that out. The complete ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives life to the church, and life is exactly what they needed at Sardis. Warren Wearsby writes All of the church's man made programs can never bring life, any more than a circus can resurrect a corpse. The church was born when the Spirit of God descended on the day of Pentecost, and its life comes from the Spirit. When the spirit is grieved the church begins to lose life and power but when sin is confessed and church members get right with God and with each other then the spirit infuses new life and you end up with revival. He's the one who has the seven spirits and also the one who holds the seven stars. And the seven stars we saw from chapter 1 are the messengers of the congregations. And so the leader at Sardis needed to call his people back to true spiritual life. Well, the second thing I want you to notice with me is the condemnation in verse 1. He says there in verse 1, he says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now I want you to notice something here that's different than the other letters. In the other letters, he's always started with the commendation. Before he tells them what is wrong in their fellowship, he always begins by complimenting them on what is right. But there were no words of compliment, there was no commendation when it came to the church at Sardis. Now imagine being in a position where the Lord Jesus looks at your life or your church and there is absolutely nothing that he can compliment. What a sad state of affairs that would be. It reminds me of how Paul opens up the book to to the Galatians. In all of Paul's letters he would always begin by, by talking about a church and how he was praying for them and what they were doing right. But when you read Galatians chapter 1 he launches immediately into saying I marvel that you have so soon removed yourselves away from the gospel and you've begun to embrace a message that is really no gospel at all. He just jumps right in to the complaint. And that's exactly what he's doing right here with the church at Sardis. Folks, they were condemned for the form of religion, but there was no real relationship. Now, that's a sin that any of us could be capable of. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul talks about how church life is going to be in the last days. And he says that how religion is going to be is there's going to be the form, there's going to be the outer shell of church life going on, the outer shell of religious practice, but the church is going to deny the power of the gospel. You're not going to see life change. And so as we've read through all the other letters and the sins of those churches you might have been tempted to say under your breath now that's a sin I would never commit but as we talk about what the sin at Sardis was we have to recognize that that is a sin that would be very easy for any of us to fall into. Religious practice without the reality of spiritual life in behind it. And again notice how serious it is because despite all the sins committed by the other congregations the Lord nonetheless was able to move on and say something positive about them. But at the congregation at Sardis the church was complacent and living only in the glory of the past and there was absolutely nothing good to be said. I want you to see two things when it comes to the condemnation. First of all, they were living on a false reputation. He says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. It was a church with a good reputation. If you would have gone door to door in the community, you would have probably heard very good things said about the church. Sardis itself as a city had a very good reputation It was one of Asia Minor's oldest cities It was a great trading center It was also a wealthy city Sardis was known for its wealthy men and its wise men Now actually there had been two towns There was the old town and the new town The old town was a place of glory The old town sat high up on a plateau that had one little narrow neck of land that you could get into the city by going across that little land bridge and getting into the city, but on all the other sides of that plateau there were steep mountainous cliffs and, and you couldn't get into the city anyway but that one way. Well because the plateau was of course limited in size the city could only grow to a certain population and so when they outgrew the capabilities of the plateau the city moved, the whole entire city moved down into the valley below the plateau down into the Hermas Valley and that valley was a river And the river brought not only water but one of the tributaries to that river even brought gold dust into the city. As one scholar points out, he said it seems like even nature itself was conspiring to make Sardis a very rich place. And apparently the ease and the wealth of living in Sardis made the people soft and complacent. It reminds me of what can happen today in a family. If kids grow up, there's never any discipline in the household. That kids are never told no and they're always given everything that they want all the time. They can grow up soft and complacent and, and that kind of upbringing can actually hurt them later in life. Well, in that kind of setting, a church had flourished as far as worldly growth was concerned. John R. W. Stott writes that the church here was progressive and was probably known to the other six congregations. It's felt that it was perhaps a large congregation. Stott writes, its program included many excellent projects. It was positively humming with activity. There was no shortage in the church of money or talent or manpower. There was every indication of life and vigor. They probably had about anything going on that you could ever imagine. But it was all just busy activity. There was no real spiritual hunger or life. Stott says this socially distinguished congregation was nothing more than a spiritual graveyard. They're living on a false reputation. Well, the second word of condemnation is they're religiously alive but spiritually dead. Now, the Old Testament prophets wrote a lot about this. The courts of the temple were oftentimes teeming with people and there was no shortage of sacrifices. And yet on one occasion the Lord himself said, This people draws near to me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Likewise, in the New Testament period, it was the same way. The Pharisees said their prayers and they fasted in order to be seen by men. They would give their gifts in order to be seen by men. They would go through all their religious practice for appearance and show, and yet Jesus said that they were nothing more than whitewashed tombs. They made themselves to look good on the outside, but there was no life on the inside. In fact, they were filled with dead men's bones. And so, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right up to the current time, the Bible says this will be a problem. Religion without reality, religion without life, is a constant problem in the church. We can go through all the right motions at all the right times in such a way that men might even be impressed, but God can be very far from us. I would ask you this morning, is there reality in behind your religious appearance? We got all dressed up this morning and came to church We take a seat, we open our Bibles when we're supposed to We we bow our heads in prayer and pray when we're led to do so We sing all the hymns of the faith and and courses Uh, we, We do all the motions of religion Which is what we're supposed to do But is there life behind the liturgy? Is there life behind the practice? You see, Jesus said that though they lived at Sardis, in reality they were dead. Now Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, it was just the opposite. He talked about himself, how he died daily for the sake of the gospel. He said we die and yet we live. At Sardis they lived and yet he said you're dead. MacArthur gives a good analogy here. He talks about how you can visit a museum and you can see stuffed animals and and, and the taxidermist has done those stuffed animals in such a way that they look very much alive and yet they're dead. They're stuffed animals. There's a man in my former church. Graduated near the top of his class at Auburn, went into the military, soared up through the military uh, with big ranks, left that, became a president and CEO uh, of, a, of a company in America. One of the most awesome leaders I've ever seen in my life. Big man, too, about 6'3, six, 6'4, six, very commanding presence. Don always loved, he goes to Alaska and, and does a lot of big game hunting. He told me on one occasion here, here some years ago, he had been to Alaska, and as they were hunting for big game, all of a sudden they accidentally they jumped a big old grizzly bear, and he had a had a hunting guide there with them, and 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 Don said that big old grizzly bear came running down the hill after him, charging, and he said every instinct in his body told him to. Uh, to turn and run as fast as he could and the guide said don't you dare leave me here don't you dare run Don said well what are we supposed to do? and the guide said you do what I'm going to do I'm going to empty my gun into him and they began firing and Don said that big old beast kept on a charging and they kept firing and it kept running and he said it got right near them and just right before it got to them, it fell down dead and slid kind of near them. He said that, that animal was so big you could almost feel the ground shake. And big old, big old Don, he said, man, I, I was sitting there like a wet noodle. He said, I just, I just almost collapsed right there. He said, but we got that skin out of there. He said, that guide skinned that animal, the, just the head and the, the, the coat alone of that big old grizzly bear was more than 200 pounds. I said, how'd you get it out of there? He said, strongest man alive. He said, my, my guide was only 180 pounds and he threw that whole hide over him and he said he carried that thing out donated it to the Shield Nature Museum over in Gastonia. You can go in there now, behind a glass, you see this nine-foot-tall grizzly bear. They've got it standing up on its hind legs. That's the grizzly bear he donated. And you're looking at it, and it's there looming down on you and looking at those teeth growling, claws, very much alive looking. But guess what? It's dead. Again, that's how they were at Soros. Boy, they look good on the outside. But on the inside, they were dead. What are the signs of a dead church? One of the sure signs is that when it's more concerned with what it's done in the past. Another sign is when it's more concerned with ritual rather than bearing fruit. Jesus said in John 15, 8 that we would prove to be as disciples when our lives bear fruit. What's the Bible talk about when it talks about bearing fruit? Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's bearing fruit, that inward nature, the the fruit bearing, the Holy Spirit that does a work of transformation on our hearts, a work of redemption and, and changes us from the inside out. And then there's the outer aspects of bearing fruit in the New Testament. In other words, the lives that we impact for Jesus Christ. So inward and outer aspects of bearing fruit. And again, Jesus said, you will will abide in me and I in you. I'm the vine, you're the branches and you'll bear fruit. And as you bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit, you'll prove to be my disciple. Well, the sign of a dead church or a dead Christian is when there's activity and motion of religion, but there's no inner or outer fruit that that matches the religion. Folks, if we're not wrapped up in some way with the Great Commission, if there's not love and joy and peace in our lives, if there's no hunger for the things of God, that we want to glorify Him and and live for Him, if there's not a hatred of, of sin in our lives... And we can say all we want to that Jesus is Lord and we know Him. And yet what's the Bible say? We're dead. There's no reality there going on. We we need to understand that religious attendance and activity in and of itself is not a measure of true life. The Bible tells us there's to be the attendance and and the motion there. The Bible says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. But the attendance and activity in and of itself does not guarantee life. In fact, religion can be deceptive. It can give us a false sense of security that we're okay when in reality we've never been born again. Well, what was the challenge? Look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus points out here that they can be resuscitated if they'll act quickly. They can be raised to life again. But first, he says they must wake up. He refers to his soldiers as, as being asleep. Now, folks, let me talk to you a minute about a key word, okay? Maybe you've experienced something in your past. Could be good, could be bad. But maybe there's a word that I could use that when I use that word, it would immediately, in your mind, take you back to that event. It'd be a key word that anytime you hear that word, you think of what happened in your past, good or bad. Well, that's how it would have been at Sardis when they heard this challenge to wake up. That would have been like a jolt of electricity to them. They would have known exactly what the Lord was making reference to. You see, I mentioned a moment ago how the old city sat up on a hill. And armies would come and go and armies would try to attack Sardis. And they would never be able to because again the city was built on that plateau, cliffs on all sides and only one little land bridge where you could get into the city that way and the armies in Sardis would guard that land bridge. Well, 549 BC Cyrus, the Persian king, He brought his forces into Asia Minor. He was sweeping across Asia Minor, conquering the area. He came to Sardis. And all the armies kind of locked themselves away inside that old city at Sardis and started protecting that land bridge. And Cyrus couldn't get his Persian troops in there. It said he challenged his men. He said, if somebody can help us figure out how to get in there and defeat Sardis, the whole area will fall and be under our control if we can capture Sardis. Well, after several weeks, there was a spy down there. They didn't know up top there's a spy watching them, but there was a spy watching them, and a guy up top dropped his helmet over the edge. Not knowing that anybody was watching, he went over the wall of the city and went down the cliffside, one of the only ways you could get up from there. Well, that spy that night led Cyrus's armies up that side of the cliff. They scaled over the wall of the city into, into the city of Sardis. And guess what? All the soldiers in Sardis, they were either sleeping or they were guarding that other side over by the land bridge. They were never supposing anybody could get in that way. And so they totally surprised them and conquered them. And like I said, found them asleep and complacent. Now if that's not bad enough, in 218 B.C. Antiochus the Great, his armies did virtually the same thing to overtake the city. And so not once but twice the residents of Sardis had lost their city because of a failure to wake up and watch. It had been deadly for them. And so Jesus is telling his church to wake up. Men are losing their souls. They're going to a devil's hell. While many in the church today are satisfied with what they have and enjoy. And so we, just like they, need to wake up and not grow weary and not grow complacent. Folks, there's no reason today for the church in America to not be doing more than we're doing with the gospel. We're asleep in so many ways. Think about it. We're we're not being prevented, at least not yet, from carrying out the ministries of the church. And yet so often we're content to come, be entertained, be made to feel good. We leave with a great sense of satisfaction. We forget all about our mission to the world. What would Christ say to us? We need to be watching. Romans 13 Paul says beginning in verse 11 And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed The night is far spent, the days at hand Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness And let us put on the armor of light. I wonder this morning I wonder, not trying to make you feel guilty, unless you need to feel guilty, but just examine your faith. Is there an honest burden and concern in your life over sin? Is there a love and a devotion to the things of God? Do you ever even attempt to share your faith? Do you read God's love letter, the Bible, and are we men and women of prayer? Do we serve it? Do we grow? If we have to honestly answer all those questions in the negative, folks, how can we even claim spiritual life if there's no evidence of life? If there were a corpse laying down on the floor and I went down there and took its pulse there was no pulse, no breath no response to stimuli of any kind what would we say of that person? They have died. Would anybody be offended by that? No. They died. We'd be calling 911 for help. Yet spiritually speaking Are we pretty much the same way? No evidence of life whatsoever. Appearance, yes. Activity, yes. Life, no. What's Jesus say? Wake up. People can't see your heart or my heart. But as he pointed out, men will know us by our fruits. the, The fruit, that inward and outer fruit, gives evidence of spiritual life. And so it's a very fair question Is there life? Because where there is life, there is evidence of life. Is there life? He says, be strong, strengthen the things which remain. They need to strengthen the things that remain because Jesus says, I have not found your deeds complete. Marvelous ray of hope in this council. If they will act swiftly, God will bring renewal. God can either bring life, He can bring regeneration out of somebody that's religious but lost. He can bring regeneration or where there's been regeneration but the life is dim now. There's not much, quite frankly, not much signs of life. Jesus can stir up revival in that believer. He can do both. Whatever your need is, revival or regeneration, he can do it. And he's telling them there at Sardis he can do that. But he's saying you must act quickly. There's an urgency to what he's saying. Folks, the hour may be later than we think. At least for you personally or me personally. The hour may be much later than we think. We need to act with Urgency. And he says, remember... There's the admonition to remember what they've received and heard. They've been privileged to hear the good news of Jesus. We've been privileged. We've been privileged to receive the Holy Spirit. If you're a child of God, He's your seal, pledge, teacher, the one who empowers you. God's given us everything we need to be about His business. It's almost as though God was saying to the church at Sirtis, What shortage have you found in me? There's no shortage in God And so our challenge is to either be renewed or regenerated Get on with his business that he's told us to be about I want you to notice in verse 3 He promises them if they won't listen There's nothing left but a very swift and certain judgment Just like Cyrus' troops, just like the troops of Antiochus the Great Caught them suddenly and there was judgment Jesus is saying the same thing can happen here spiritually Verse 4, he points out that there was still a remnant there God always preserves for himself a remnant Verse 5 he says he would not blot out his name. Now, now folks we need to understand that in the context of that back then. that was They would not have read that as a threat that they were going to lose something. That was actually a statement of assurance. You see, in the ancient cities when you died or you committed crimes that you were found guilty of, your name, the books of the city would be opened up and your name would be blotted out. Jesus is actually saying that those who respond to him, they don't ever have to worry about their name being blotted out. And so the readers back then, the listeners back then would have understood that. As a great promise of security, that they were secure in Christ. But what a great challenge He's giving to them because He loves them. Folks, as I think about my own life and our fellowship here, I, I'm, I'm thankful as I look at the fellowship. The signs of activity that I see, the motion that I see, it's encouraging. But we've got to honestly ask ourselves, is there life behind the motion? Is there reality behind the religion? Do we just come and go through the motions, get all dressed up? Because it's Sunday, go through the motions, sing all the hymns, listening to the preaching and taking part in Sunday school and doing various things. We go home and the gospel never penetrates our heart. We're religious but we're not born again. Billy Graham says he's convinced 50 to 75 percent of the church today Is lost That's sobering to think about isn't it? The parable of the soils If we take that in any kind of literal way That the four different kinds of soils That the seed of the word of God falls into There was only one One out of the four 25% One out of the four That was a legitimate response To the gospel Listening in and of itself Saying with our lips, Jesus is Lord, being in attendance, going through the motion, all those things in and of themselves don't necessarily equate with spiritual life. Do you know that you've been born again? After all, Jesus said to a very religious figure, Nicodemus, one of the leading religious figures of his day A man far more religious than any of us in this place today could be compared to Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven That's not a Baptist preacher talking That's the Lord of glory. That's Jesus himself saying that. Unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Have you been born again? Not gone through classes or confirmation or joined a church? Have you joined Christ? All those things are wonderful. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But it's to be an expression of genuine life, not in place of. Have you been born again? That's what matters is their life and the evidence of life that comes out of that faith. That's what James taught about. When James says faith without works is dead, James wasn't preaching a works salvation. He was simply saying genuine faith will be seen in what we do. There'll be fruit. There'll be evidence. Where the Holy Spirit has done a work of regeneration... His thumbprints, his footprints are in our life. There's evidence. Is there that evidence in your life? If there's not, I would urge you to give serious attention to this. The Bible says you must be born again. I don't ever want anybody to get the misunderstanding that just by driving your car to church, parking it in a parking space at church, and walking through their doors and coming in and being a part of a church. I don't want anybody to equate that with Christian faith. Redemption has got to take place. Have you been redeemed? Have you been reconciled to a holy God? If not, ask God this morning, convert my soul. I'm not even going to ask you to make some urgent, fast response. If you need to go home and wrestle with it all week, get on your face before God and say, oh God, would you convert my soul? I want to be born again. I want to be changed from the inside out and stay on your face before God. Go to Him day after day. Don't be satisfied until God does a work of redemption in your heart. Do it. If you know you've made that decision, but... the light's just burning dim. You might want to come to this altar today in a, in a public way. Say, God, would you stir the fires of revival in me again? I'm cold. I'm not dead. I mean, you're, you're, my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I know I'm secure, but, but spiritually I need to wake up. I need to be renewed. I need to be revived. Ask God to do that in your life. Don't be satisfied with just the motion. Let there be reality behind the motion. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the message to Sardis. A message of love because you wanted to do business with them. You were inviting them to do business with you. Same with us today. You're inviting us. Father, you know our need. You know our heart. If I'm speaking to somebody this morning that knows they've joined the church without joining Christ, would you open their eyes to that? Would you save them? Lord, those who have been born again, stir their hearts to renewal and revival. May we bear fruit for your glory not only brings assurance to our lives, but is a witness to the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.